Jesus, this book that we're studying, that we're diving into, it begins with these words that says, a revelation from Jesus Christ. And God, how much do we need a revelation from Jesus Christ about what your kingdom looks like? About what your heart is? About what you're up to in the world? About where we're headed? We need that revelation, so would you come and give it to us? Come and speak truth in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So last week, my friend Kristen Kike, first she's an artist, she's an amazing woman, she painted a couple of portraits of the text that I was preaching through, and we're going to do that for the next several weeks. So this is Kristen. Everyone say hi and give her a round of applause. That's your way of saying hi. So it's okay to be distracted during my message this morning. If I see your eyes wandering, I know. And the fun thing is I don't get to see it at all, and all of a sudden I turn around and boom, there it is. So we're going to also have him on display during this whole series as we see visually how the story of Revelation plays out. Last week was a fun, fun week. If you were here, you know. If you weren't here, you missed a good one. It was a good time. It was a good service. It was a good message. I had a lot of people come up to me, an abnormal amount of people come up to me and be like, that was amazing. And I would say, basically, any person with a vocabulary that's over an eighth grade vocabulary could have preached through Revelation 4 and 5, and it would have been amazing because those are two of the most beautiful chapters in the Bible. I mean, in, the, in Revelation 4 and 5, we see, we get, John gets transported into heaven, which seems like it's kind of all around us. It's not up there. It's not in some other cosmic realm. It's, he says, a door w- opened up right in front of me to heaven, and I just stepped in. Was there a welcome mat, do you think? And if so, what language would that have been in? English, obviously, right? He steps into heaven, and there all of a sudden this mind-blowing, reality-altering vision. He, he steps into heaven, and he sees the throne of God and the almighty, everlasting, living one sitting on the throne. And there's flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Can you feel the drama of the moment? And he sees 24 elders with crowns, and they're casting their crowns before the living one. There's four creatures that look super weird. In their, their, one looks like a lion, another one looks like the, an ox, another one looks like a person, and the other one looks like an eagle. They're covered with eyes. But what's really important about them is that they never stop worshiping the everlasting God. We're confronted with this beautiful image of this supernatural reality that exists eternally. God on his throne. Then we saw the scroll that was in the hand of God, the living one, in who nobody could open except for this one who was the Lion of Judah, but who actually appeared as a slaughtered lamb. John hears, hey, don't worry about it. The Lion of Judah, he's triumphed. He can open this, this seal. He can open this scroll. And then he looks and he sees a slaughtered lamb. See, because this is the way that God conquers, that God accomplishes victory is through his own self-sacrificial death. And then when we finally see the lamb, we just see this huge 
cosmic outburst of worship where these 24 elders and the four living creatures just burst involuntarily into worship. And then we see a multitude. It says tens of thousands upon tens of thousands of angels. Can you picture it in your mind? Worshiping God, crying out in worship. And then it says everything, every living creature that exists, whether it's in heaven or under the earth or on the earth, in the sea, every living creature just begins worshiping God. How about that for a vision of what's real? How does that fit into our little tiny world, this reality of who God is and what's really happening? Last week was really fun. This week is going to be not quite as fun, I'm sorry to tell you. Not quite as fun. It's not going to be as bodacious and worship-filled. It's going to be kind of dark, cryptic. We're going to be reading coded language, apocalyptic language and writing. It's going to be a little bit more academic. So are you guys ready to think with me? Are you ready to, to kind of try to get to the mystery of revelation that many of us have been wrestling with for all our lives, or maybe that many of us think we figured out a long time ago. Are you ready to have that posture like Kyle talked about, humble and listening, receiving? It's going to be a little thoughtful. So the first thing that we need to think about as we step into Revelation 6 and 7, the thing that we need to realize is what the actual form of literature that it is that we're reading, which is apocalyptic writing. Apocalyptic writing. Now, apocalyptic, when we hear the word apocalypse or apocalyptic, we naturally start thinking about the end of all things, right? You see a post-apocalyptic movie and it's some crazy catastrophic event has happened and millions of people have died and the earth is a wasteland and we get to see, it's kind of like, what is it? The Walking Dead, right? Zombie apocalypse happens. That's what we think about when we think about apocalyptic writing. That's not what apocalyptic writing is in the scriptures. Apocalyptic writing happens here in Revelation and it happens in the Old Testament as well in Ezekiel, in a, a few parts of Ezekiel in the second half of the book of Daniel. Apocalyptic writing, the function of apocalyptic writing is God wants to sustain and encourage his people in times of crisis. The purpose and function of apocalyptic writing is for God to encourage and sustain his people when they're in a moment of crisis. If you read the book of Daniel, again, there's, the second half of it is apocalyptic. That's because God's people, the Israelites, have been taken into exile. They had been conquered and just decimated by the empire called Babylon. And they had been taken out of their land, out of the nation of Israel, and brought to a foreign land around people who spoke a foreign language. And they were completely humiliated. And God spoke this apocalyptic message to them to encourage them to say, this empire that is oppressing you will not have the final say. He brings that to bring hope to God's people in times of crisis. Same thing in Revelation. In the first century, the church, the people of God, are, faced, are under, the, under the thumb of this awful ruler who demands worship and allegiance. And God is speaking to his people saying, I know you're being persecuted. I know you're being imprisoned. Right now in this moment, the Roman Empire will not have the final say. 
And the way he communicates that, the way the apocalyptic literature is written, is in symbolism, in kind of cryptic language. It's not plain and simple. It's in this coded way to, for God, where God wants to communicate to his people, I will achieve final victory and you will with me if you are faithful to the end, even through death. We have to understand what apocalyptic literature is if we're going to understand the book of Revelation. So are we, are we on the same page about apocalyptic writing? Are we there? Okay. So that means we can move forward. And what we're going to find in these next couple of weeks, the narrative is played out in this kind of drama, this scroll that was in the Father's right hand. It's this, the, what's written on the scroll is the mystery of the plan, the God's secret plan to bring redemption and renewal to his good creation that's been riddled with darkness and ugliness and evil and sin. It's the problem of sin, the problem of evil and injustice that we see all around us. The, the people have been wondering and, 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 and asking for centuries, what are you going to do about all this, God? Is this the end of the story? And what's written on the scroll is how God's good creation has been overtaken by darkness and sin and evil and violence and oppression and injustice but that will not have the last say. So we get to see this grand narrative of human history, and the way it's communicated is in three groups of seven. I hope you're following with me. This is, again, this is academic stuff, but we have to understand this if we're going to understand the book of Revelation. We, we dove into a really heady book. There's three groups of seven in the book of Revelation. We're going to dive into three, the three seals, then coming up will be three trump or, I'm not sorry, seven seals, then seven trumpets, then seven bowls. If you're at all familiar with the book of Revelation, or maybe some of you are here this morning because you're Revelation junkies, you'd know th seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And what these three sequences of seven are depicting is not three different eras within human history. They are not three different dispensations throughout history, though some have believed that. What they are are three, three different ways of looking at the same thing. The same, the, the, the same thing is happening, and it's three different angles of looking at that same thing. Are you still with me? Three different angles at looking at how the world has beco become corrupt and violent and evil and how God is going to overcome it. So we're going to get three different angles on that. This week we're going to look at the seven seals. One angle of human history and where it's headed. Next week we're going to look at both the seven trumpets and the seven bowls. We're going to just go on speed, speed revelation style. Are you ready to see the, to get this first apocalyptic glimpse as to what our current and past reality has been and where this is all headed? Are you ready? Are you ready for the crazy? All right, all right, let's go. This is Revelation 6, so you've got to remember Revelation 4 and 5, though, where this comes from. The Lamb starts breaking the seals of the scroll to be told in, throughout human history. And John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, come! And I looked, and there before me was a white horse. His rider had held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second of the seven seals, I heard the second living creature say, Come! And then aloud, another horse came out, a fiery red one. 
It's Ryder, just imagine this. If you want to, you can read it, or you can just close your eyes and just picture this in your mind. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living, third living creature say, Come! And I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Think like the Lady Justice, holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, think of those red wax seals. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. And I looked and before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and the wild beasts, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number, full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like a sackcloth made of goat hair, and the whole moon turned blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Here you hear the intensity. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from his place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? The word of the Lord. I wish you could see yourselves. The looks on your faces. This is heavy, intense, crazy imagery. So we're just going to walk. Oh man, I don't have enough time. But we're going to walk our way through this imagery and trying to figure out what God is speaking to his people. Are you ready? So these four horsemen, I love this. I love just saying this. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. That's dramatic. The four horsemen of the apocalypse. Now, people have, throughout the centuries have been trying to understand this and use this imagery. What the four horsemen, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to come out and say what the four horsemen represent or what most scholars, trustworthy scholars believe, and then we'll go through one by one. But what the four horsemen of the apocalypse don't represent is the beginning of the end times. Many of us take, have taken the four horsemen of the apocalypse and what comes with them is the beginning of the end times and tribulation. What the four horsemen of the apocalypse symbolize is just a normal day on planet earth with a broken humanity that destroys God's good creation. Let me say that again. What the four horsemen of the apocalypse symbolize is just a normal day in any point in human history where humanity has let sin and evil invade and it's corrupting God's good creation. 
Just start with the first. The first horseman represents, it says, he, 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 he's let, set free to conquer because he's bent on conquest. That sounds like any empire throughout human history, including today, where we find men who are power hungry, people who are obsessed with power and conquest, and this is the story of planet Earth. The second writer, it says it gets unleashed, and the second writer is given the power to suck all the peace from the earth that's there. See, the reality of what this earth and what humanity have been created for is kind of, you can boil it down to this Hebrew word called shalom. Shalom. Shalom is a word that kind of speaks to this overwhelming wholeness, health, and rest coming upon a person, coming upon a people, coming upon the earth, wholeness, fullness, and rest. Shalom, the peace of God. And this second horseman represents how humanity and our evil and our violence and our, and our, and our selfishness and our, self, our, our obsession with ourselves, we come and we suck all the peace and the shalom out of God's good creation. Then this weird third horse, horseman who holds scales in his hands. And it talks about wheat and a day's wages and all this business, the ancient readers would have instantly known what, what the, fourth, the third horseman is representing. It represents, basically, economic injustice. Economic injustice in the reality that there are some in this world who have, who have all sorts of things and there are others who have nothing. In the ancient Roman Empire, when this letter was written, where this vision was, was spoken, some, some think the tax, tax rates for the Roman Empire onto the people, the subjects, was, were almost 90%. You think you're overtaxed? Talk about economic injustice. This was the reality that these people were living in. They didn't need to imagine what that was like. They were living in it. And then the fourth horseman, it says, plain and simple, it represents death. All the things that come out of humanity, sin and evil and ugliness and darkness, it results in death and it's filling the earth. These four horsemen do not represent the beginning of the end times. These four horsemen represent just normal, everyday life on planet earth. The original readers would have, wouldn't have needed a code book uh, uh, deciphering what's going on here. They would have seen it happening right before their eyes. Economic injustice, violence, oppression, a ruler called Caesar, hell-bent on gaining worship and allegiance and conquest. It was happening right there before their eyes. We just several days ago saw 12 people murdered in a bar outside of Los Angeles. And the crazy thing about it is how not crazy it is. Just a couple weeks before that, we saw 11 people murdered in a synagogue. And we don't even, I don't even post on Facebook about it anymore because it's just become old hat routine. Friends, we don't need 
to decipher and ask what's, what these represent in the future, they're right here in front of us. We live in a broken, dark, violent world that these four horsemen of the apocalypse represent. Next in our text, we find the, the, the fifth seal gets broken and we see souls of the martyrs underneath the altar. And they're calling out for vengeance. When will you avenge our blood that's been spilled? The ancient, we, we obsess about this and we say, oh, this is going to happen with the great tribulation at the end times and this is, there's going to be a bunch of saints killed and the ancient readers would have been like, I'm sorry, but this is happening right now. You don't understand, but my cousin, my, 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 my great friend for years, they were imprisoned. They were murdered because of their faithfulness and allegiance to Jesus. This was a real thing in the Roman Empire where, to the people that this was originally written. But we obsess when this is going to happen. This is a real thing that the original readers would have said, oh, that's so beautiful, those ones that I love that have lost their lives for Jesus. They're in heaven, and God's given them a white robe. They've entered into this shalom. Then we find we're just cruising on through. Then the sixth seal opens, and all sorts of natural disasters start happening. There's a great earthquake, and there's a lunar eclipse, and a solar eclipse, and there's, there's stars falling from heaven, and the mountains and the islands are shaking and breaking apart. And ever since this, Human beings who have read this have been trying to figure out which natural disaster is going to be, spell the beginning of the end times, right? When Hurricane Sandy happened or Hurricane Katrina, I was just in New Orleans, and all they talk about is post what Katrina and how that just completely crushed that city. When that Katrina happened, there were all sorts of Christians who say, it's the end times, it's happening now. And then a hundred years ago when a great tornado or earthquake or natural disaster happened, everyone was saying, it's the end times! And then a thousand years ago when a great earthquake happened and wiped out a bunch of people, everyone was saying, it's the end times! What this is, what we have to remember, this is apocalyptic writing where symbolism and imagery is used to communicate something bigger that's happening. And what we find in Old Testament prophetic and apocalyptic writing is that natural disasters are used as symbols for earth-shattering occurrences that actually happen in history. For example, these natural disasters represented to the people of God being, kept, being overrun by the people of Babylon and taken into captivity. Or in first century Rome, Roman Empire, these natural disasters represented this this ruler who demanded their worship and allegiance and would kill them if they didn't give it. Or in modern times, these natural disasters are represented by, by things like the Holocaust or natu- nuclear bombs being dropped on God's people or, or things like 9-11. Earth-shattering, catastrophic events that cause people to say, what in the world is going on? And God just saying, just expect them. Evil is running its course. And then we come to this portion where it says kings of the earth, princes, rulers, rich, wealthy, influential people start hiding and fearing for their lives. It's this really scary picture where they're saying, come fall on us, hide us from this, this, the one who sits on the throne, the living one. We, we don't want to deal with his judgment and wrath. 
Now, those are two words that don't drive people in the doors on Sunday mornings, judgment and wrath. Maybe if you're a type of a certain kind of demographic within the church, we love that, right? We love the judgment and wrath. But most of us, if we're healthy people, who, loving people, we don't thrive on things and ideas like judgment and wrath. But we're, friends, if we're walking through the book of Revelation, we need to come to grips with this idea of the judgment of God. It's a real thing. It's inescapable throughout the scriptures. And the question then is, how do we think about what does the judgment of God mean? So here's the deal. The judgment of God is not, doesn't flow from the anger of God. It flows from the justice of God. Oh, really good way to understand the judgment of God is that God will judge the world, which means that God will set this evil, broken, darkened world to rights for once and for all. And that's a beautiful thing. For God to be a good and just God, evil and violence and oppression and injustice and racism and all that ugliness cannot exist eternally. For new creation to break forth, for the end of the story, for Revelation 19, 20, 21, for that stuff to happen, God needs to judge evil on the earth. God, if God didn't judge evil, if he didn't put an end to evil and violence and sin on the earth, new creation couldn't break forth because those two things are not compatible. Evil, violence, injustice, and oppression, they cannot exist in new creation that we're all waiting for. And so there has to come a moment where God comes and he judges it and he puts an end to the violence of this world. There has to be a moment where our prayers are answered and we don't have to worry about things like child sex trafficking anymore. There has to be a moment in human history where God puts an end to division and segregation and racism and all that ugliness and the violence that comes with it. There has to be a moment in human history where God says, no more. And that's is the judgment of God. And what we'll find throughout all these pictures of judgment is that God is begging for his people to repent. But for those who stubbornly and steadfastly choose their own evil, wicked, violent, ugly ways, judgment is really actually coming because it doesn't fit in God's new creation. For those who choose to persist in ugliness and evil, God will say there, there will be no more of that. And that's the judgment of God. Then, let's read on. What time is it? 11.50. We're going to go late today, guys. It's not a joke. <laughs> maybe seven minutes? You got 12.07. 12.08, maybe? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Chapter 7. After this, John said, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any kind of wind from blowing on the land or on any sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were being sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. And it goes on to say 12,000 from each of the tribes of Israel. Man, all sorts of people have been trying, trying to figure this out for all sorts of decades and centuries. What's going on here? 
First thing, let's, talk, let's think about this, how God is sealing his people through, before a great tribulation is about to come. Remember, this was written to a real group of people, a church in the Roman Empire in the first century, who were in the midst of a great tribulation, who saw family members and loved ones who wouldn't, who wouldn't give up their allegiance to Jesus being imprisoned and taken and, and persecuted and marginalized and even murdered some of them. And this is God saying, don't worry, I've sealed you. You are mine. Even through this persecution, even through this tribulation, even through all the garbage that is happening, you are mine. And I've sealed you through this persecution. And here's the, here's the big deal, not from it. Now, some of you Bible geeks, Revelation, you know, Revelation lovers who are here because of that might be go, oh, okay, Randy's post-trib. One of those code words we use, pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial, whatever. I'm not any of those things. I'm just saying God in the scriptures right here is saying tribulation, persecution, hardship, awful things will happen in this world. And God, I'm not going to beam you out of this world. I'm going to save you through it. So persevere. Be faithful. Can you be faithful even until death, God is asking his people? Because if you do, I'll give you the crown of life. There is no easy beam out of persecution. We would have no idea about that stuff. The original readers would absolutely, people on the other side of the world would absolutely know what that's talking about. They're sealed by God in his identity. And then they will have this picture that we're about to read. Then it says, after this, in verse 9 of chapter 7, after this, John said, I looked and he, he heard there was 144,000, then he looked and there before him was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, tongue, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hand, worshiping God. Do you remember last week where John's weeping because there's a scroll that he desperately needs to be opened and read, but no one could do it. And the, guy, and, the, and the elders said, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. Do you remember that? And then he looked, so he heard the lion of the tribe of Judah has, has triumphed, and then he looked, and there was a slaughtered lamb, not a lion. That God's power and victory is actually achieved not through this royal image of a lion who conquers everything, but it's through a slaughtered lamb who let himself be killed by his enemies. And that's how God accomplished his victory. He heard the lion, he saw the lamb. Same thing here. He heard there was 144,000 of God's people. And then he looked, and lo and behold, there's this great multitude, not just of one nation, not just of Israel, but of all nations, all tribes, all tongues, all people, all ethnicities coming together to worship the living one in the Lamb. It's one of the same. He hears 144,000. He looks and sees this great multitude. And there's scholars, people who believe that Revelation 7 might be the most important chapter for the church in the whole New Testament. Do you know Why? All you have to do is, like Kyle was talking about, look around on just in our culture. Do you feel the divisiveness? Do you feel the anger that you try to just 
self-contained for people who don't see it your way, whether it be gun control or, or gender stuff or sex, ideological differences? Do you see the, do you feel the, the, do you see the nationalism that's kind of undergirding our whole world, not just our country, but really breaking out across the world? Tribalism, separation, assuming the worst about other people that look differently or that think differently or believe differently about you. That's the current context, but God says that will not be the future. See, what this whole thing is headed towards is people from every tribe, every tongue, every race, every ethnicity, every culture, every nation, everyone celebrating those differences and worshiping God in the midst of it. This is the future that we're headed to. And friends, the reason that scholars think this is so important for the church is because we have a choice to make now. Are we going to reflect and live in light of our broken, separated, segregated city and world around us? Or are we going to live in light of and reflect the beautiful, multi-ethnic, multinational, multiracial, multi-language, multi-everything world kingdom of God? Which will we choose? Which are we choosing? Which kingdom are we going to live in light of, the way of this world or the way of the future reality of all people? We live in a city, friends, that's just this beautiful, I should say, let me say this, this ugly, horrific model for the way of the world. We live in what most experts say is the most segregated city in the country. And that is the exact epitome of darkness and evil in the way of Satan. So what is the church? What are we going to actually do about that? How are we going to live? How are you going to think? Are, you gonna, are we going to give ourselves to nationalism? Are we going to give ourselves to separation and segregation? Are we, gonna, are we just going to wink and nod as people get torn apart and it's just become Operation Normal? Or are we going to repent? Repent of that ugly way of the world of the four horsemen of the apocalypse and say we want to be walking previews and trailers of the resurrection we as a church insist on what being together rather than separated and divided we as a church insist on living in a new way where all people come together and are celebrated and are included is this the way we're going to live, friends. Because it's the way of the future. It's what we're headed towards. It's what this whole thing is headed towards. And I want to worship that God. I'm going to read the end as we head into worship now. We're just going to do two songs. I want to worship. I don't feel done yet. And like last week, I'm going to read this beautiful vision of this future reality of all nations and, and languages and tribes and tongues coming together and worshiping God Got Jesus wiping every tear from our eyes. Let's stand and just listen and let this catapult us into worship. If you want to, you can read along or you can just close your eyes and picture and imagine this and get ready to live it. After this, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation and tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. 
They were wearing white robes, and there were palm branches in their hands, symbolizing worship. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And they were saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength. We could go on and on. Be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? What did they where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, yep. These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. These are they who have who've come out of the wicked ways of the world and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Yes, Lord. Never again will they hunger. Yes, Lord. Never again will they thirst. Yes, the sun will not be down on them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of their throne, he will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Yes, Jesus. Jesus. 